On this episode of the Combinate podcast, we had Sarah Waxberg McNew, an expert in the field of human factors. Uh, Sarah is the chief scientific officer at Design Science. Before joining Design Science, she held multiple in- internal roles at large medical device and pharma companies like Eli Lilly and Company, Philips Healthcare, and Baxter. She also serves on AMI committees, where she contributes to the development and revision of HF-related technical information reports and international standards. Sarah and I talk about her interest in human factors early on in her career and how that influenced her. We talk about how to read the HE75 and IEC 62366 standards. Uh, We talk about the design validation process, how human factors, formative and summative evaluations fit in, and we talk about considerations for combination products. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Sarah. You're listening to the Combinate Podcast, a show that connects you to the most important resource in the medical device and pharma industries, its people. My name is Subi Sedate. I'm a bioengineer, and for the last decade, I've sought to broaden my understanding in this industry, and have been amazed at the wonderful people I've met and the insights they've given me. Each week, I sit down with leaders to discuss their expertise, the lessons they learned, and continue that mission. Whether you're a student, engineer, scientist, or marketer, you're sure to pick up advice and knowledge that you can apply to make an impact. Now on to the episode. Can you uh, give a little uh, intro about yourself and just a, a bit about your background for the audience, please? Sure. Um, so as we already mentioned, I'm, I'm Sarah McNew. Um, I'm the Chief Scientific Officer for Design Science. My background is actually in human factors and biomedical engineering from Tufts University. Um, and my career has been doing human factors within the healthcare industry. Um, I have spent a number of years working within industry uh, at Baxter Healthcare, at Phillips Healthcare, and at Eli Lilly and Company um, in various roles, uh, kind of serving as the human factors lead or user center design lead um, at these companies. And then I joined Design Science almost three years ago uh, to try out consulting. So that's a little bit about me. And what what's kind of like your so you were you were sort of in-house in the earlier part of your career and yeah. then you moved to consulting any any kind of major changes there yeah very very different um so i spent over 15 years in industry um and then moved into consulting um started out my career in industry in kind of a individual contributor role and then moved more into strategic management as well as kind of functional leadership um, I would say the, the biggest differences are probably um, the pace. Consulting is definitely a lot quicker. Uh, we Our normal timelines are, you know, stints of doing studies or evaluations in anywhere from two to 14 months on average or 14 weeks on average, I'd say. When in industry, I was working on projects that were three, five, seven, nine years in, in terms of a timeline. Um, I'd also say just the, the breadth of what I get exposure to, um, has been pretty cool moving into consulting. 
So getting to see so many different user populations, different devices, different ways of product development, um, that's been that's been really cool um, getting to kind of experience that within consulting. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I, I maybe hadn't realized that um, kind of the difference in, in paces and, you know, you talked about the difference in, in maybe the um, development cycle. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, because I do want to spend a, a little bit of time talking about uh, users, you know, you mentioned seeing different user populations. And if you're if you're on a three, five, seven, 10 year project, you know, you're sort of limited that in that regard, especially if, a, if especially if a company is kind of set in a specific product area. Um, right. But I'm wondering, like, what what different user populations have you been able to interact with in the consulting capacity? Yeah, um, I mean, a ton. Um, definitely a lot of different rare patient populations. Um Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, dealing with all sorts of um, people with diabetes, um, nurses of all different care areas, physicians, um, technicians, caregivers. Um, it's been it's been a very big breath of a whole bunch of different populations. Um, so yeah. Mm. What what considerations would you have to give for say an Alzheimer's kind of patient that you wouldn't for um, another? It's it's actually been a really eye opening experience dealing with that population. There's a lot of considerations in terms of you know device user interface, obviously, um, but also just in terms of logistics of evaluation, you know, making sure that we're setting up and scheduling those times after they've taken their medication, um, you know, considering the language that we use in the introduction of our studies, um, allowing accommodations for their caregiver to join them. Um, there's just a lot of nuances to, to really um, making sure that we're, we're making our patients as comfortable as possible in participating in these usability studies um, as we are in terms of making sure that their voice as that patient is considered in the product development process. Does it, I'm, I'm wondering if from a, from a risk management perspective, does it, I mean, does it change the scoring? I mean, do you look at uh, kind of potential for harm a little bit differently if, um, you know, the, the user, I mean, you would, if you would, if it's a, if, if a user is different, like a, you know, a P1 value, if, if, if you get where I'm going, but I'm wondering mm -hmm. if, you know, that type of thing is, you know, taken into account when it comes to somebody with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Yeah. I'd say it's less so about like the specific indication, more so the potential for harm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if, if it's a medication for migraines, um, you know, that's that's definitely more of an acute, like symptomatic treatment versus Alzheimer's, where it's kind of a chronic condition. So, you know, one small mistake isn't necessarily as serious as, you know, that adherence over time. Um, so I would say that's probably more where it comes into play, less so necessarily, you know, severity ratings or op like, you know, occurrence ratings. Mm. 
Um, so then, then leaning a little bit into the user, um, who who is a user? And you know, I ask this question because, um, you know, I work in industry, and and many people have worked worked in worked in industry for a while. Yeah. I think somebody who's who's new, especially from from a kind of human factors perspective, there's the person who's administering the medication if it's an HCP some and then there's a person who's being administered to sometimes yeah. it's self-administration and so yeah. how do you uh, how, how do you define a user yeah all of the above so it's a user is pretty much anyone that interacts with that device interface so it could be uh, the caregiver that's doing the administration the patient that's receiving the minute the medication the um, healthcare provider that's prescribing the medication, the clinical educator that's, you know, training you how to use that device. Um, if it's something that's, you know, uh, requires maintenance or some sort of, um, you know, reprocessing, then it could even be uh, technicians or biomedical staff. Um, so it really is anyone that interacts with that product. Um, how do you get close to a user? Uh, so for human factors, um, generally our process is doing usability testing. Um, so simulated use testing where we bring the patients or end users into a facility where we have them naturalistically interact with devices and products. Um, so we recruit user populations to ensure that we have a full breadth of representative users and we observe them or interview them and uh, get really direct interaction with that product. Mm. Um... It's really funny. I had a, a guest on the show um, a month, maybe maybe a, a couple of months ago, and he was talking about how he attended a kind of formative study. And, you know, he's sitting in the, the room behind the, the glass and, you know, he's watching all these user interactions with, with a product that it sounded like was relatively early. And then mm -hmm. he goes to the restroom uh, with, during a break and he sees like the, you know, the, the moan, um, I don't know how to pronounce, maybe it's moan, like the uh, faucet and mm -hmm. he's like trying to get it to work. And then he looks in the mirror and he's like, whoa, is somebody watching behind the mirror? <laughs> Am I in a study? And so it's, it's, it's just kind of funny. Um, but I'm, <laughs> it's really funny. Right. But I'm wondering what, um, how early should you start doing these types of formative studies because at, and, at, and at what point does it become kind of uh, prohibitive? Yeah. So honestly, human factors testing and user research should be done as early as possible, um, even pre-concept, because you could come up with a really cool technology that, you know, does crazy things that no one has ever done before. But if the users that are intended to actually use that device can't or don't want to or you know it doesn't fit into their current workflow then you know it doesn't doesn't really matter so making sure that you do user research all the way up front understanding user needs understanding user requirements um, and iterating through that process 
um, can only be beneficial. There really is never a bad time to do human factors and do iterative user testing. Is there is there a distinction between user needs and user requirements, or are they the same thing? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> I think there's a lot of different. <laughs> yeah, there's a I lot of different philosophies about that. Um, my uh, my approach to that is that user needs are really what the user needs and wants. User requirements is kind of an umbrella that encompasses that but ultimately gets translated into actual um, specifications or requirements of the product that can solve or um, meet those needs. Can you give me an, an example? And I think what I'm trying to distinguish between is user requirement versus design input. I would say user requirement is a design input. Okay, perfect. Okay, so that's, that's really helpful. Yeah. So um, we talked about uh, kind of the importance of pre, you know, starting as soon as possible and, you know, even even pre-concept because they, um, if, if you have a significant, you know, use error or likelihood of harm that, you know, you may, you may need a full redesign or a completely different concept. Mm -hmm. I get that. Um, I think the question I have for you is, do you have a story, and obviously barring company names or particular designs, mm -hmm. I'm sure you have many, of, of a, you know, one that could have been avoided if they had done a study in pre-concept? Hmm, that's a good one. Um... Maybe let it marinate. Yeah, let me yeah. think. <laughs> okay. Um, so then... Um, how, so then, okay, so you, you know, you talked about user needs, and I'm wondering, how do you reconcile between, a, you know, a user saying what they want a product to do, um, sometimes, you know, working with, you know, healthcare providers, um, or, or people who are in practice, you know, they, they ask for things that are, are not realistic, or not producible, or uh -huh. can't be scaled, or, 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 or they think, or they think kind of too small. And I think the quote that comes to mind is, uh, you know, the Henry Ford, we yeah. know where he says, if I asked, um, people what they wanted, I'm sure, you know, it, they would have said a faster horse and carriage and, yeah. um, you know, people don't know what they want. So, you know, how do you ask them? I, I get the, you know, monkey sessions or doing early studies, but when you're talking about defining user needs, any advice there? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's the, that's the beauty of doing use, user research, right? You kind of always have to combine a method of asking people what they want, but also seeing what they do. Um, because sometimes we'll be doing usability testing and, and someone will say, you know, we'll ask them, how did that session go? You know, did you feel like you had any difficulties? And they'll say, no, absolutely not. You know, it was totally easy. I got it. But when we watch them, they did every step wrong um, or they had no idea that they completely messed up and didn't even get their medication. So doing that combination of asking and seeing is really important um, in terms of, you know, identifying those things that people don't even know that they necessarily need. Um, there's definitely methods for collecting opportunities and identifying 
you know, gaps for satisfying user needs. So doing more of that naturalistic observation or um, seeing the current workflow, but speaking to workarounds and decision processes and work workload analysis um, to see all of those things that people don't even know that they're doing that they're doing um, is a really good way for identifying kind of some of those opportunities uh, where, like you said, they may not even know that they need a solution, right? It, a, a really good um, example of that, I would say, is, you know, in my time doing research in infusion pumps, um, line management is a nightmare. Um, if you've ever been yeah, to a I hospital, was actually, <laughs> right? Like, I, I was actually, I was go going to ask you actually a question about that yeah. use case specifically. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the spaghetti. That, yes, exactly. It's spaghetti. Like you can't even imagine like how many cords and, and, you know, infusion sets and wires and things are everywhere. Um, but nurses don't even recognize that they're having to deal with that every single time they enter a room. It's just something that they automatically solve for themselves. But, you know, mm. going in and being able to see that from an environmental standpoint, you know, it, it's just so obvious that there's so many solutions out there that could potentially, you know, help in that space. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was going to ask. I, I guess, um, having worked on products and under, under, you know, understood um, user-centered design a little bit, you know, it's easy to understand when, when you talk about um, influencing the design of something so that it's easier to use or more usable, so on. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm wondering in, in your work now in consulting beyond product, do you guys actually work on just situations like because I don't think it's a it's a product related issue, you know. If you have twenty IV lines, I mean, there's probably a product that could be solved, but it's also maybe a workflow issue. So I'm wondering if mm -hmm. there's, um, does my question make sense? Yeah. So um, I would actually like it, say like that it, you may you may have a change to a work instruction versus creating a whole new product. Yeah. So there's a whole element of doing like service design. Um, so be it, you know, training, be it policy changes, be it uh, spatial layout. Uh, there's definitely a whole side of human factors in that space. Um, I would also say that there is actually a trend that is taking longer than I'd like it to. Um, but there's actually a trend of hospitals starting to hire human factors people where Whoa. those human factors people within the hospital are a part of the purchasing committees. They're part of, you know, developing um, processes within hospitals to optimize workflow and team dynamics and um, other elements that, that usability can really have um, an influence on. Um, Canada definitely has a lot of them um, and has been um, harboring, I guess, internal human factors groups for a long time, but we're starting to actually see it come to the States a bit more, which is exciting. So that's really interesting. Um, when you're, when you're working on a new product there, there's the constraint of, of production obviously and design, but there's also the constraint of 
clinical use. Can you talk a little bit about how um, clinical practice is, is established for products that are existing? Uh, so talk to me a little bit more about what that means, what question that is. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, dispose in accordance with good clinical practice. Right. What that actually means to a user, you know, based on from hospital to hospital. Yeah. Maybe a little bit different. Yeah. So um, we actually recently just did a study on a product um, that isn't really that uh, prevalent yet in the States. Um, and so they develop their product and their processes and their labeling based off of what they know from European policy um, and European practice. So it was a really interesting study where we had um, every single person come into the session saying that they would expect to get training on this product where the the client you know came in with this impression that you know this was standard practice and everyone should kind of have a baseline foundation to the knowledge of using this product so it definitely comes into play where policy or you know hospital procedure or clinical practice can definitely impact the overall user interface I guess maybe ask the uh, question a different way. You yeah. as maybe an infusion pump manufacturer would be established, and I could be wrong here, but you, you would be establishing the use of the actual infusion pump. Mm -hmm. You may not have, uh, you know, the nitty gritty of how a nurse should manage the lines. Mm. Uh, the lines are managed in accordance with the hospital training, right? Mm -hmm. And so how is that set up and training disseminated? at the hospitals? Um, so that's a very interesting, I guess, area, this area, this space. Um, it kind of mm, goes into this, um, this, this space of defining like normal use versus abnormal use. Yeah. Um, and it really is the burden of the manufacturer to understand how their product will be used wherever they put it. So there's a, there's a difficult kind of decision point that every manufacturer needs to make of whether or not they're going to build up the infrastructure to support um, training from a level of requirement or prerequisite versus counting on a hospital's policy for internal training where they can't necessarily control it. And it really impacts the potential risk profile. So as, a, as an infusion pump manufacturer, um, you know, knowing whether or not you're going to set up the infrastructure to send sales and marketing or clinical educators out to actually do training, have a roster, make sure those nurses and, and uh, physicians are trained up before they use your infusion pump is a definite undertaking versus sending out an infusion pump and evaluating it and validating it with the assumption that anyone without training can use it. 
So you answered my question. Did I? <laughs> yeah, 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 you did. I mean, I guess what I gathered from it is, and, and this is, this is, this is aligned with my experience too. I mean, I've, I've, um, worked on new product areas. I've worked on existing product areas and, you know, I understand the burden on the manufacturer. Yeah. Um, and so if not actually, I guess what I gathered is if not defining, um, how it's used, uh, understand how it's going to be used. And, you know, that's what, um, that's what historically I've seen, but I think the the kind of the question mark is what all goes into um, kind of creating those and how are they approved and and maybe it's 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 more of a question for um, you know kind of a, a, a hospital admin or yeah I don't know how hospitals do their training basically gotcha um, yeah so it it is really varied so I was very fortunate um when i was at baxter to get to do um a very large uh field research study where we went to i think 16 states um to to do the implementation of infusion pumps in hospitals every single hospital did their training differently Mm. (laughs) and it was just a matter of what their organizational structure was, who's responsible for doing the training, you know, how did they set up their shifts? Were the infusion pumps centralized or were they, um, you know, in individual floors or individual rooms? And there was so much logistics to like defining that training that it, it is literally different everywhere. Um, it, in working, um, in, so I guess before we get to that, um, you, you talked about human factors and I think you also mentioned human factors engineering. What is the distinction there? Uh, human factors versus human factors engineering, you said? Exactly. Yep. Um, I would make them synonymous. There's a lot of semantics in human factors. There's <laughs> usability engineering. There's human factors engineering. There's human factors. There's user-centered design. There's user interface development. Um, so there's definitely a lot of semantics. But in terms of my reference of human factors versus human factors engineering, I'd say that they were the same. Yeah, it's really funny that you mentioned that. I think a couple years ago, uh, I... I will say I, I wasn't a huge um, fan myself of HF, not not in the sense of, you know, I think it's really important and, you know, I work to, to try to understand it, but it, it wasn't an area that I found super interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I started surrounding myself with more and more HF people and it's like, uh, you know, uh, the, the bug bit me a little bit. And yeah. so I started getting into it a little more and uh before where i thought it was it wasn't so clear and it was pretty ambiguous and the more i saw it's that that it, it's sort of different than say doing characterization and feasibility testing where it's it's a little bit more clear cut and yeah. you just have to think about what you're seeing and you know what is the observation that you see and how are you going to respond react whatever in terms of design um mm-hmm. It's, it's just a, a little bit different. And then I started reading standards and, you know, started saying, okay, well, it's ambiguous. Uh, but the standards are pretty long. And I have a few questions for you about standards. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I guess lead in. Um, do you find that you get a personal connection working in HF? 
Absolutely. With I mean, the, that's, with the that's users. why I went into human factors. I actually started my college journey in mechanical engineering. Um, and I felt like I was missing the human element to mm. what I wanted to do as a career. Um, so it was actually what, what really drew me into going into human factors. Um, just being able to see products in people's hands and hearing when people say that, you know, the device that you're working on would change their lives um, is, is just amazing. So getting that, that human side and that personal interaction um, is really what, I guess, sparks my passion in human factors. So that's really interesting. Um, did you did you decide to go into human factors um, while you were in an undergrad or after? Yeah. How did that, how yeah. did that kind of work out? Um, I was in mechanical engineering and I got to the point of, you know, getting into fluid dynamics and those kinds of things. And I was like, yeah. I, I don't see this as being uh, my long-term career path. So I ended up um, talking to the Dean of Students who pointed me in the direction of um, what Tufts University calls engineering psychology or did at the time. Um, and they actually have an undergrad program in human factors. So oh. I ended up um, connecting with the advisor that was heading up the program and um, got to experience doing some research actually in spatial awareness and colonoscopy. Um, as my first research study, and then moved into doing minimally invasive surgery, virtual reality, surgical simulators and robotics. Um, and just that element of the human brain having to process all of this information in order for these technologies to work um, was just my thing. And I fell in love with it. Hmm. What was, what was the, and so you basically, you, you did a, you did your bachelor's then in HF. Yeah, I did. I did my, my bachelor's in human factors and, then, and, and biomedical engineering. And then, and then I and then, moved then, into a master's program. Uh huh. What does the curriculum look like? Um, so I can only speak to the, the curriculum that I'm yeah, unfamiliar yeah. with, but at Tufts yeah. University, it was, um, in the engineering school within the mechanical engineering uh, department, but uh, I'd say maybe a third of our courses were actually in psychology. So we did courses in you know experimental design and um, statistics and um, you know user interface development and anatomy and um, really understanding the human side of engineering. Yeah, it's so funny. I have to do all of those like engineering core, you know, core classes and, and do all of my calculus and physics and chemistry and all that, but uh, got kind of the, the psychology side of things as well. So one, one third. And then um, uh, I was going to say, it, it's funny, you said that you can only speak to the curriculum that you, uh, you know, you <laughs> went through and it's like, no, I want you to take human factors and I want you to put it in a box <laughs> for the audience, you know, talk about a Herculean task. But, and then what was, what was the master's curriculum like? Was it more focused on psychology or? Um, it, I mean, it was human factors. So it was really getting into um, anthropometrics and um, getting into the application of all of those principles that we developed. So, you know, how do you apply this 
this, you know, half art, half science into actual application of engineering products. Um, so it was a lot more, um, I would say, I guess, hands-on and more practical um, in, in learning how to apply those principles to actual development. And then anthropometrics, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that sure. kind of just basic dexterity or? I yeah, so that, right? um, I think it, mo it mostly started actually in the military where um, it was the measurement of every single, um, you know, limb, every single dimension of the body. Um, and so we use that to really understand um, workspace design or, you know, in developing combination products, what's the maximum length of a uh, um, syringe phalange that you can, you know, expect someone to be able to reach? What's the um, reach of, of someone in terms of being able to access their product on, on a hospital workspace? Um, so it's, it's those measurements, basically, of the body. Are there any, um, you know, you mentioned that it was developed by the military. Are there any, um, I guess, standards related to anthropometry that are followed? Yeah, so AG75 is the main uh, design handbook for or design guidance for applying human factors to medical device development. Um, and there is a fairly significant section in there around um, different measurements of the body and different relevant requirements with respect to developing things for humans. Hmm. Um, can you tell me about a time where you thought that you maybe understood a user, but through either a human factor study or further understanding, you, you, you found out you were wrong? Uh, sure. So um, for a while, I was working on um, MR um, devices. Um, what is that? So magnetic resonance <laughs> devices. Yeah. Um, and those systems that, are... Yes, imaging. Yep, imaging devices. So those are like huge capital devices where they're sitting in a hospital. Um, and so the majority of the user interface is actually software uh, that a MR tech is usually interacting with. When I was working on those MR um, interfaces, I assumed that they would want everything to be as automated and simplistic as possible so that they could minimize their, you know, work time, be efficient, um, you know, and be able to really flow through their process as quickly as possible. Uh, but what I actually found with bringing MR techs in and interviewing them and having them deal with the interface, it's actually more important for them to be able to configure as much as possible in the system so that they can use their expertise and subject matter um, expertise to really hone in on getting the best image. So my original assumption that they want things automated and that they want things simplistic and as little steps as possible wasn't valid. Mm -hmm. It was actually that they wanted to be able to um, understand exactly where all of these 
300-ish different um, options are for them to be able to configure them. So it was an interesting uh, swap in my my assumption to the reality of what they were really looking for as a user. Hmm. That's really interesting. And so the, the response then was to give them the configuration that they wanted? Yeah. So they really wanted all of those options, but they wanted the options you know, separated into menus that made sense or in locations that made sense and was relevant to the image in the right way. Um, but they, they definitely were opposed to automation. That's so interesting. Uh, that, that reminds me of the, uh, I think it's Einstein quote that's like, make it as simple as possible and no further or something like that. Yeah. Um, I guess it, it boils down to where you, um, where you where you end the end the line there um can you talk about uh, i guess design validation and its relationship to human factors yeah love to because a lot of people think that they're synonymous <laughs> um so in terms of design validation you're looking to prove that you design the right device right or the right product um, and so you want to make sure that your product is meeting user needs. Human factors validation um, or summative testing, depending on where you are, um, is really a portion of that, but is not synonymous. So there are definitely some user needs that may not be able to be satisfied by doing your human factors validation. Um, there may be things that require you know, environmental bench testing, or um, there may be things that actually can be verified by human beings as opposed to doing simulated use testing. Um, so I would say that human factors validation is a portion of design validation, or at uh, least it, maybe even in a Venn diagram, significantly overlapped, but not necessarily equal. Can you, uh, you, can you give an example um, is, is that where you were talking about, I guess, basically is the, is the Delta between the summative and the design validation, the user requirements or design inputs that are testable? So I would say the, that most of your user needs will be able to be validated in your human factors validation. Yeah. Um, but there may be things like, um, that the systems shall operate in like all intended clinical environments where we're not going to do a simulated use study, you know, like in every single environment to prove that out. Like that could be something that's done with bench testing between a certain envelope of humidity and vibration and, um, you know, temperature um, so there are certain user needs that don't require user testing. And then on and the then other in, side, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, keep going. Um, so on the other side, there are aspects of usability that may not necessarily be directly linked to a user need. They could be a marketing requirement, or it could be a delighter, or it could be, you know, usability, but non-safety related. 
where you may also evaluate that in your human factors validation, but that's not necessarily a part of design validation. Mm-hmm. What is a delighter? Um, something that really excites someone. <laughs> so it's something that's beyond maybe a necessary function, but it's something that um, could save time, that you know is bring satisfaction. Um, those things that are outside of just the have to haves. Understood. Um, I guess the, the the last question I have related to what you just said um, is that benchtop testing, is it typically like, I mean, it sounds like design verification. Is it not? It, yeah, it can be. It can, it be. can be. Yeah, it could be kind of a, an analysis of verification, right? But I would yeah. say that that's outside of the scope of human factors, typically. Understood. Okay. So that, that goes back to the, the Venn diagram that you were describing. Mostly yeah. overlapped, but you know you may need to add in some, say, finishing touches that may not be yeah. captured in uh, summative uh, evaluation. Uh, can you, uh, I guess, putting it all together, can you talk about what the normal human factors engineering process looks like, kind of? Uh, cradle to grave from start to finish. You know, you, st- you you mentioned starting out at the concept phase with an evaluation. Is is the first thing typically a formative study, or what's what's the earliest thing that you can do? Oh, that's that's a big question. Um, so I would say the the very beginning is doing user needs identification, um, and also characterizing your users your environments and the tasks that they're going to achieve. So even before you start doing testing of any sort, it's really understanding your user. Um, That's really at the core of all things human factors. It's that user-centered aspect where you truly understand who you're going to be developing for, where they're going to be using your product and what ultimately they want to achieve. So starts out really early there. Um, there's a lot of methods for doing that. There could be field research. There could be doing interviews, competitive benchmarking, um, a whole bunch of different methods. Um, then I would say you want to translate that into actual user needs and requirements, um, maybe developing use cases where you're really defining those scenarios that someone can use a product. Um, And then as soon as you start having concepts, so be it pen and paper concepts, be it weighted 3D printed models, um, you can really start iterating on formative studies. And formative studies are really any user studies that are done before you get to the point of validation. Uh, so you could do that, like I said, as, as early as pen and paper, or you could go as late as a, a pre-summative or a preclinical study where you're really basically dry running your validation study um, or proving out your clinical trial um, process and methods. So those formative studies basically get iterated as many times as you can throughout the process. Meanwhile, you're creating those user requirements and iterating on those user requirements of defining all of the elements that are important to that user interface. 
as well as identifying use-related hazards. So that should also start really soon, really understanding what people can do wrong so that you can make sure that they can't or do the best job in making sure that it's difficult to do. Um, and so risk is really an integrated part of the human factors process when it comes to especially um, medical product development because you want to make sure that you are mm, idiot proofing the process as much as as possible. Yeah. Um, and so that gets iterated. You're going to do as much as you can to mitigate as many use errors as possible. You're trying to optimize the design in the best way possible. And then your final finish line should really be that human factors validation where you're proving out um, safety and efficacy. Um, throughout that, we have to do a lot of documentation to make sure that you know all of that is you know, documented and traceable. And then ideally, if the product gets launched, even past that, you really should be continuing your human factors process by monitoring your listening systems for any use-related um, errors or complaints, and then bringing that back into the process to, to do the loop all over again. Um. When it comes to formative studies, that's the that's the biggest. Um, uh, I, I'd say you you spend most of your time in the formative area, correct? Ideally, yes. <laughs> unless you're, yeah. unless you're a company that comes to us and says, "Hey, we just submitted a, a submission, and they're telling us we have to do human factors." Uh, oh, so. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> funny, not funny. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. That's a, yeah, the, 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 the question I have with formative, if you're spending so much time, I mean, there's kind of a wide variation of the type of formative studies, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I am kind of glad you asked that because I think that there's a, um, a general assumption that human factors can be very time consuming and expensive. Um, and that's definitely not the case. You can definitely do, you know, very small formative studies that will give you a lot of information um, and can really save you time and money in the long run. So formative studies can be, you know, interviews over the phone. They can be surveys conducted. They can be, um, you know, it, you could even use internal employees to do formative studies as long as you're, you know, not um, trying to say that those are completely representative users. But even general population can sometimes give you great feedback on your medical product before you get too far down the line. Um, and then, you know, the the ideal is obviously doing simulated use studies. Um, where you bring representative users in to interact with your product um, and kind of have them go through process. But again, it's a very scalable um, kind of phase of development. You can use a lot of methods. You can do as, as you know, big or as small in terms of the fidelity of the, the stimulus or the stuff that you're testing. Um, so it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty wide range and very scalable. Um, 
from from a uh, I guess regulatory point of view, um, there's a there's there's oversight with a summative study, correct? Um, correct. Typically with with uh, agencies, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. Um, so really, the end all be all for a submission is ultimately your human factors, um, engineering, usability, engineering report. Um, I guess specifically for the FDA, but um, generally it, it satisfies most international Ministry of Health requirements. Um, and that human factors engineering, usability engineering file is really the full story of your human factors process. But the huge meat of that is your validation study. Um, and so there are definitely some um, particular requirements, again, specific to the FDA mostly, of, of doing um, human factors validation like sample sizes. They want 15 people minimum per user population. Um, where does that come from? Yeah. Why, why 15? Yeah. Where that comes from is that there um, is a reference that speaks to the fact that 15 people will get you at least 90% of usability findings. So after 15 people, you're going to have a really low return on investment in finding anything usability related. Um, that's also where the formative you know, requirement of six to eight comes from, because that will already get you um, around 80% of usability findings. So you'll start to see uh, those observations repeated after you get to that point. So it's basically the Pareto principle. Mm-hmm. Um, fo- you know, focusing on the 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 amount of uh, people that will get you the most um, kind of results. In, in in terms of oversight, you talked about um, you know submission of the protocol. Um, anything else that's typically expected from um, regulatory agencies? And then also, I guess follow up question to that. You said your validation study. I just want to maintain the terminology. You're talking about your human factor summative validation, not your full encompassing design validation. Correct. 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 Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So originally it was formatives and summatives, and then they changed the terminology, at least within the FDA, to formatives and human factors validation. Um, so summatives and human factors validation are synonymous. And then in terms of regulatory expectations, is it, is it only the protocol that's expected so, uh, to be reviewed before you execute? Yeah, so they don't require that protocols are reviewed, but they highly, highly, highly suggest that you do. Do you um, highly suggest? As I well? would. I would absolutely suggest that you do a pre-submission with your protocols. Um, not only is it going to give you a gut check on where you are, but it, in my opinion, is also a really good time to challenge some of the things that you, you know, are kind of on the fence about. So, for instance, if you have multiple user populations, but you want to make the argument that they all do the same interaction and therefore a homogeneous population, you have the opportunity of, of suggesting that you do one user group as opposed to three, 
um, and make that argument and justification and potentially save yourself a lot of time and money um, in, in kind of making those positions. Or if you want to suggest a certain um, training regime or not, um, it's a good time to kind of challenge that or the use of surrogates because you have a very rare patient population. Um, it's a really good time to just get that alignment with the FDA and even open up those discussions so that you can get that feedback. Um, um, and when you say surrogates, you mean the, like placebo or? So yeah, placebo for people basically. Um, so it would be um, another term when it sometimes uses proxies. So mm. let's say that you have a um, condition that you're targeting that generally the population is um, clinically obese. They have, you know, very, uh, they have vision impairments. They have uh, dexterity limitations, but that specific disease state is very, very, very rare. Um, being able to do a validation with the actual patients might not be feasible. So being able to have that conversation of, well, we can't test that population, but we can test uh, maybe diabetes, uh, people with diabetes that um, have a high obesity level, have vision impairments, and have um, neuropathy. And so those characteristics of the user are identical, but the actual disease state is different. Um, interesting. And so it, it, it would be a situation where from a feasibility point of view, having um, all of the um, users in the human factors validation be from a rare disease population may not be realistic. So you try to find the, you know, kind of most common denominators of those with others and make a proposal that, you know, we're going to widen the pool a little bit, but still be representative of our exactly. um, user exactly. population. Um, uh, it's for also me been interesting, especially during the pandemic as well. There's a lot of uh, populations that are extremely, you know, like autoimmune, like, or, or, you know, or at high risk. And so, you know, bringing those patients out into a test facility might not be feasible or even bringing someone into their home is probably not a good idea. So being able to still get your evaluation completed by matching those characteristics with other populations that might not be as high risk um, has been an interesting, um, I guess, recent, more recent. Oh, story. man. I didn't even think about uh, questions related to, you know, times of the pandemic and doing studies. So we will get to that shortly. But the, I guess to, to wrap up the, the summative questions, how yeah. long is the typical turnaround time on a review with, with say, FDA? Um, so before the pandemic, they were committing to a review timeline of 75 days. Um, and they were actually trying to reduce that, I think, over the next couple of years. Um, but with, um, recent, with the recent, you know, series of events, the timeline I've seen has been anywhere between 60 days and five months. Mm. Uh, have you ever been in a, um, kind of situation where someone submitted without getting, um, I guess, endorsement to start? I guess I'm wondering, I'll ask the question differently. 
if you're doing a relatively non-controversial um, HF study and, mm -hmm. you know, you're expecting to get endorsement to continue, is that a viable option or should you in all cases submit? No, you don't always have to submit. There definitely are, you know, more standard studies like pre-filled syringes or things where there isn't necessarily a um, unique user population where there isn't necessarily nuances to doing that study um, where you don't have to submit. It's really all just risk reduction, right? And, and a matter of, of business risk, honestly. And, and you've seen that done successfully before if it's absolutely. not controversial. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I guess going into the standards a little bit, well, you just mentioned pre-filled syringe, so we'll do that one first. What considerations are unique to combination products? Uh, yeah, so um, I would say in the combination product space, you're definitely having to do more considerations for home use. Um, so there is a guidance document around the use of combination products in home use. Um, there's also the element of generics. Um, there's a draft guidance out right now about um, threshold analyses um, and comparative use studies, which is specific to ANDAs and generics, um, where the agency is really asking for um, equivalence with respect to the user interface, which has been an, an interesting um I guess, newer um, expectation. Um, there's also the element of combination products where there's the consideration for medication errors beyond just the potential of serious harm coming from the device itself. Uh, so Cedar and Sieber um, have kind of created a little bit of a distinction in their definition of critical tasks. So critical tasks are um, those tasks that are really required for safe and effective use of a product, where the um, drug side of the agency is focusing on any harm. Um, and the device side has put in the specific word of serious harm. Um, so the device side is really prioritizing uh, higher severity harm, where the drug side has not only the consideration of harm, but also the element of dosage and efficacy of the drug. So sometimes in normal use, the removal of a cap on a pre-filled pen, if they can't get the pen off, then they ask their, you know, their significant other um, later that day and they get their medication eventually. But when you have a drug product that's intended to um, prevent cardiac arrest and all of a sudden now that drug product has to be used within 10 seconds, removing that cap all of a sudden becomes a critical task. And so there's that interesting um, element of within combination products where you have to consider everything because the drug is now part of that overall system. Got it. Understood. Um, you talked a little bit about the, the threshold analysis. I'm wondering, can you, can you lean into that a little more? 
Sure. Um, so in terms I think it's I think it's a relatively new and, and there's the, you know, comparing to the reference listed drug. And yeah, I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about what the expectations are with that? briefly? Yeah, sure. Um, so in terms of doing threshold analyses, um, I'm gonna actually bring up the standard really quickly to make sure that I hit all of those. And I think it's sort of in a similar arena while you're pulling it up, kind of mm -hmm. what considerations should uh, maybe a company make when they're purchasing off-the-shelf components? Sure. Whether it's sort of generic and compared to a reference-listed drug or it's, you know, you're purchasing a kind of platform device and putting a, um, a drug in it okay. from a use perspective. Um, so in conducting, um, a threshold analysis, what the agency is really asking for is to make sure that this new generic that you're putting on market isn't going to potentially introduce new use errors because of the design of your device. So if there's an expectation from the current user population with the reference listed drug, um, that their product works a certain way and now are all of a sudden given a new generic in a device that's close but not exactly the same, it can potentially cause um, what's called negative transfer um, where that person's mental model and assumption for the way that something works can actually cause them to make mistakes or errors. Um, and so what they ask you to do is... Uh, basically a formalized way of looking at all of the differences between your product and the RLD. Um, and you have to do that from the standpoint of labeling. So that's literally a side-by-side, line-by-line comparison um, of your labeling or IFU versus theirs. Um, there's also the comparative task analysis. So you're looking at the steps required to use your product, um, as well as a physical comparison of the actual delivery device. So you're looking at whether there's more force required for your device. You're looking at um, if there's different a different way for activating your device. Does the button change from a push button to a twist button? Um, and ultimately, you want to identify those things that are d different. So are there no differences between the two? Um, and if not, if there are differences, are those differences significant enough to warrant additional evaluation, which is where you move into that potential need for doing comparative use studies? Although the FDA has been very clear that if you feel like you're heading towards that to submit and discuss it with them um, before you actually do comparative use analyses. Got it. So that's, that's all, um, I think, really, really helpful information. Um, I think in, in particular, sort of beyond the looking at the labeling and IFU going beyond and doing sort of... Um, comparison functional evaluations to see that well even yeah. though you're doing the same things are you actually performing uh you know kind of the same way 
um, especially because maybe processes can be a little bit different. And um, I wanted to, you know, you've maybe already answered that there's like the the idea of, you know, hear what people say, but see what they do as well. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm paying attention here, taking notes. Uh, One of the questions I had for you is related to HE75 and and IEC 62366. (laughs) How do you recommend people read them? I'm going to take the answer of when you need to pull them up, even <laughs> yeah. if it's live. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think H E seventy five in particular. I I definitely don't expect anyone to memorize that. No, absolutely not. I would not recommend reading that document as a you know beginning to end document ever. Um, which is ironic, you know, for a, a usability guidance. It's not the most usable document, but, um, I would definitely use it as a reference document. So if you know that you're going to be developing a product that has, um, a connected, um, app with it, there's a section around, you know, web applications and connectivity. Um, if you're developing a device that has, um, labeling or international considerations, there's a section for that. Um, so if I would say the the best way to really consume that, that guidance is probably going through the table of contents um, and understanding what's in there so that you know what you can reference when. And then in terms of 6366, um, there's now part one and part two. So part one is really the what is required and the part two is the how to do it, um, which has now become a technical information report. So part two isn't really those requirements. It's really the, um, you know, the informational aspect of how to potentially achieve the requirements of part one. So I would you, say read part one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can you can you talk about? Um... That kind of the difference between HE seventy five and and the IEC, when when should they be applied? Do they apply to different products or? Yeah, so um, IEC six two three six six is really the requirement. It's the standard. HE seventy five is a guidance, um, and it it does have some initial sections up front about risk management about. Um, you know, human factors processes, but it's not a requirement. Um, 6366 is really the what has to get done. So there are things in there in terms of the documents that you have to create, the traceability that you have to have, um, the, the different activities that have to get conducted throughout the process. HE75 is more around, um, like I said, some aspects of usability process in that front end, but really the benefit of that document is the um, the design guidance. So things like what at what point um, or what decibel level um, are alarms going to physically um, hurt someone? Um, what's the minimum font size? that you can use and still be legible? Um, What are globalization considerations for color? You know, if you use a certain color on your device, are you going to be 
indicating something depending on where you launch it. Um, and so those are more like the design guidance and design principles where 6366 is really the process. And you, I mean, you mentioned at the, at the anthropometry as well. And mm-hmm. so HE75 kind of, uh, another quote by Einstein, don't memorize something you can reference. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think that's the 440 something pages. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it's a, uh, kind of a guidance where they've answered already a lot of, um, uh, human factors, engineering type uh, questions, so yeah. can be referenced that way. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about UOUP um, when it comes to six two three six six? Sure. Um, so UOUP is usability of unknown provenance, um, and where that's coming from is actually from Soup, which is software of unknown provenance. So it's a standardese language that they decided to adopt in the usability standard. Um, so where usability of unknown provenance really applies is when you have a product that was launched prior to human factor standards, um, and it, that you developed that product without a consideration for a human factors process. Um, the, it's pretty much legacy products typically where those products are already out on market. And now let's say you're going to make a change. Um, What that annex really does is allows you to identify whether or not the usability process applies to your product when making these changes. Um, So it asks you to pretty much do um, a usability specification, which is understanding who your users are, the use environments they're going to be using the product in um, and a task analysis of the intended use and then doing a risk assessment. Um, and that risk assessment is really going to be what drives the decision for whether or not the changes that you're going to be making um, are under this new usability process expectation. And then, uh, from a risk assessment point of view, um, I guess what are you, what are you using to show that you you have maybe controls in place in terms of legacy data? Yeah. So um, the the expectation is that you're going to be doing a use related risk assessment that's going through and um, doing that task analysis, understanding all the places that you can potentially have use errors, um, and also pulling any complaints or listening systems, looking at um, known use problems from any of the publicly available um, sites like MOD um, to look at whether or not there are things out there that are causing issue with respect to the user interface. And all of that has to be incorporated into that risk file um, to determine whether or not there are mitigations in place um, already, or if you need to potentially evaluate whether or not those mitigations are effective. And that's when being pulled into the usability process kind of comes into play. Got it. Um, It's hard stop in three minutes. Uh, I have a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then we'll wrap up. Um, can you talk really quickly about, um, primary operating function? 
and what they are? Um, so that's a hard one to do quickly. Uh, so, <laughs> so primary operating functions are defined in 62366. Um, however, I would say the kind of industry trend has been moving away from primary operating functions and talking more in this realm of critical tasks. Um, and so critical tasks, um, again, are those, are those basically those tasks that if they're done incorrectly um, or not done, would cause harm or serious harm if you're working with a device, um, which could potentially lead to compromised medical care. Mm -hmm. And so the primary operating functions were really originally defined around safety and overall use of the product. Um, but we've now kind of moved into this realm of critical tasks, which are based in harm, um, but also the potential efficacy of the drug when it comes to combination products. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the, the answers to kind of my burning um, standards questions. Uh, I, just a couple of kind of closing notes um, since we're getting close to our time here. Um, what books uh, do you give uh, as gifts? Oh, that's a good one. Doesn't um, have to be usability related. Oh, I read them too, by the way. <laughs> um, books as gifts. Um, so I am a big fan of Herding Tigers. Um, that's actually about like how to lead um, creative types, which I think is important in this field because especially for engineers. Um, when we're having to deal with the other side. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? I'm a huge fan of the book Set Phasers on Stun. Um, what is that? that? Is actually Set Phasers, so with a PH. Um, yep. Phasers on Stun. Um, it's actually, it, that one is human factors related. It's a um, book about basically human errors that were made. Um, like throughout history and kind of the impact of um, users. Um, yeah. I was also That's... given a Oh, go ahead. No, go, no, go. Um, I was given a book by my latest VP at Lilly that was, um, it's called Boys in the Boat, I believe. It's about the um, U.S. Olympic rowing team. And it's about like operational excellence and how, how much goes into a rowing team being as good as they are and how every single person and movement that that person makes has to be perfect to hit that moment in like an amazing rowing race. So that's a good yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> kind of an kind of it kind of an it takes the village of, yeah. of all of all three of those uh if you had to boil them down to one set phasers on stun i would say set phasers on stun that's so cool it's a, um, it's a good it's like a good easy read too because they're like each chapter is basically like an incident yeah and then uh a final question what's something you're excited about just in general something i'm excited about yeah yeah um doing my first podcast yeah, <laughs> and getting and getting to your meeting on time. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, well, I th- thank you, Sarah. This has been so awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you for coming on the podcast. I'm sure yeah, we'll have you again. I, I, I didn't even get through half of my questions, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, welcome again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. I appreciate it. This was fun. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Combinate Podcast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please share. Please send any feedback you have to combinatepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again.